is the Storymobile podcast. We are a solar-powered moving art space that travels to events and through neighborhoods to collect your stories. The St. Paul Almanac book was created in 2005 and has since been released annually. The goal is to bring together the diverse community of St. Paul through literary arts. The Almanac is a meeting place for sharing stories and artwork of our community. This year, the St. Paul Almanac released their 11th volume, On a Collected Path. As part of a reading festival, authors have gathered at various venues throughout St. Paul to read their fabulous work. On Sunday, May 21st, readers gathered at Cladow Coffee Shop to read their pieces from St. Paul Almanac's Volume 11, On a Collected Path. Well, thank you all for coming out to the St. Paul Almanac reading um, as part of the festival. Uh, we do have books for sale for $20, and today we'll be featuring readers from the St. Paul Almanac. Thank the St. Paul Almanac for all the work that they did in uh, putting this beautiful book. If you haven't looked at it, you really should flip through it. Some uh, great art in there as well as the writing. So. Um, okay, so we got eight readers today, and we'll get underway here. First up, we will have Lisa Yankton, and Lisa is a member of the Spirit Lake Dakota. She enjoys traveling, learning culinary skills, and powwow dancing. An award-winning poet and Minnesota Book Awards blogger, Lisa uses her writing and presence to create positive change. She is the mother of two lovely daughters and a pet owner of her three-legged Yorkie Poo Puppy Wampum, a.k.a. Houdini. So let's welcome Lisa. Good afternoon, my, relati my relatives. I'm happy to be here, and I shake all of your hands with a happy heart, and it's very honored to be a community editor for the St. Paul Almanac with the beautiful cover and to work with all the creative people. And uh, I'll read my piece from St. Paul Almanac called Dakota Translations. And it was an honor to write all the Dakota translations for each section. The Dakota are the original people of Minnesota. It is their homeland. There are a multitude of places throughout Minnesota that acquire their names from the lyrical language of the Dakota, including, it's, they say Matomidai, but it's Matomidi, which means Bear Lake. Chahasa, they say Chan, they call it Chan Hansen, but Chahasa means it's a tree that Chahasa is a gray-colored tree, which is a spiritual tree that used to grow there. And Winona, that's a name for the firstborn daughter. Imanesia Shkandan is the original Dakota name for St. Paul. Imanesia Shkandan means white sandstone cliffs and rocks, which you can see along the winding Mississippi River. Storytelling is a traditional part of the Dakota culture, 
with elders telling stories much enjoyed by youth and infused with moral lessons. We've included Dakota translations of the chapter titles in St. Paul Almanac on a Collected Path Volume 1, or Volume 11, to give you a sense of that storytelling tradition. Dakota means place and allies, excuse me, peace and allies. Part of the Dakota culture and way of life is the relationship to Unchimaka, Mother Earth, and Mini, water. Water is also called Miniwichozani, the water of life. The ancient way of life of the Dakota is now coming to the national forefront with environmental issues, including, including the pipeline at Standing Rock Reservation. The pipeline was foretold in prophecy by the Dakota ancestors as the Black Snake. A group of Native American youth ran 2,000 miles last summer from North Dakota to Washington, D.C. to stop the, pi the pipeline from damaging Unchimaka and the water. The Dakota people, as peaceful earth protectors, are not allowing the pipeline to cross their treaty land, which may spill oil into the Missouri River, the longest river in the, in the United States. This would pose negative impacts on the lives of Dakota and everyone downstream who rely upon the river for their water. The pipeline will also cross over the Oglala Aquifer, one of the largest aquifers in the world that stretches from South Dakota all the way to Texas. The Dakota are joined by over 200 Native American nations and many others asking for prayer and solidarity. They call themselves water protectors for their peaceful protection of Miniwichozani. In Standing Rock, they are camping in prayer and solidarity at the Ocheti Shakonwi camp. This historical camp is the first gathering of the Ocheti Shakonwi, the proper name for the Sioux, which means seven council fires in 140 years. We hope you enjoy the stories in St. Paul passages. And then I was going to read uh, some of my poetry. So you'll find, if you go through the almanac and you go through each section, like chapter four, family is Teoshbaye. Each one has a, a Dakota title. They're all, they have all been translated into Dakota. Chapter three, remembrances, Wokiksuye, and so on and so forth throughout the book, you'll find that. First poem I'll read tonight is called Giant Steps. It's an ethery. She never said to you, I love you, dear. She once loved instead one who turned her away. Birthday tears flowing eyes, cheeks. Walking path, broken college girl. Gray giant walks treetop short toward her. Giant steps shock tears into non-being. Running into apartment, pen and book. Verses open, proverbs biblical. The goddess, her name is wisdom. 
On the streets, she calls you loud. Who stops? Who hears? Facebook memes. She forgot his name. Clouds forgotten. Prayers erase. Pain, love, she. My next one is a haiku. Uh, we wrote from one of the one of the community editors. eBay asked a few of the poets to write haikus for Gambia because he wanted to celebrate Gambia as a stable African nation. It's also the homeland where three thousand, approximately three million slaves were captured and brought here, and where the main language is Mandinka. And the widest part of Gambia is 30 miles. It encompasses the Gambia River. And there's uh, wildlife that's famous in Gambia, the, the alligators and the green monkeys and the hippopotamus. Gambia, megalith haiku. Megalith snake land, tropical river, Gambia, goddess empowers. Thank you. Thank you. And my last, my last piece is a sonnet. It's about our one of our Dakota um, supernatural beings. The name of the poem is Unkteri, aqueous hero monster of the depths, battle at Lake Superior. Sonnet one. Waterways deep lie creatures of old. Ancient tales lodge iridescent scales bold. Liquid-filled caves move demigods silent. Rivers, lakes, streams, aqueous battlement. Reprobate, reprobate wakia, lightning arrows. Ebonize black land champion arose. Horned serpents submerge, charge the attack. Lightning bolt arrows assail earth to black. Warfare ensues, renegade sky beings. Battle wet unteri, evil cleaving. Lake superior secret, all who see imprisoned Wakia under which tree. Hey, thank you. Uh, next up, we have Barbara Jones, who was born in St. Paul 63 years ago and still lives there. A graduate of the University of Minnesota and William Mitchell College of Law, she is the editor of Minnesota Lawyer Newspaper. Let's give her a round of applause. Thank you all for coming. It's wonderful. I've never read anywhere before where people were standing. It's <laughs> I, I know you're not standing because of me, but I like, I like it anyway. <laughs> thank you to the coffee shop and to the Almanac for, for this um, opportunity. Uh, my first poem is uh, <coughs> called... Uh, Self-Pity and the Great Gatsby. Almost everyone at this reading is older than Scott Fitzgerald was when he died. 
44. More middle to more than middle-aged men than I expect for the great Gatsby. I'm guilty of cliched thinking. Stereotype busters, they surely don't have closets full of pink, yellow, blue, lavender shirts. They are wearing jeans and work boots and many of them look as if they agree that there no, are no second acts in American lives. They probably think I look the same, tired. The difficulty about second acts is that they're sometimes brutal. Remember the gun on the mantle in the first act? It fires in the second. And Scott finds himself writing for movies. Oh, rat, fiddle-dee-dee. And surprising booksellers who thought he'd died. Nothing would be as big as the Ritz ever again. It was too late for the green light's magic. And my second act, I'm not paralyzed, although the doctor said I should be, and I'm just so grateful all the damn time for that. Isn't it pretty to think so? <laughs> and I should have uh, acknowledged that, isn't it pretty to think so? I'm sure you, most people know this, but it's the, by Ernest Hemingway, it's the last sentence in Farewell to Arms. This uh, next poem was written about, <coughs> I think in the, about the winter of 2014, but it, it really doesn't matter because all the winters kind of become the same in your memory here. Uh, it's called Glitter in the Prairie. One winter the earrings flew away, launched by scarves wrapped twice around the neck. Telephones not smart enough to leave earrings alone knocked them off. They immediately vanished. Women stopped brushing their hair during the day and felt their earlobes repetitiously. Somewhere there is a field where an earring landed on each stalk of grass as it swished in the sun and stayed. Gold and silver, beads and crystal glitter in the prairie. Magpies resist the bling and the earrings grow a mate. They will return somehow like apples in autumn. Just wait. Next up, we have Donna Isaac, teacher and poet, likes to write poems centering on people and landscapes. Her two published chapbooks are Tommy, Red Dragonfly Press, and Holy Comforter, Redbird Chapbooks. Her poetry website is DonnaIsaac.com. Give her a round of applause. Thank I have one piece in here. It's actually a prose poem, but it looks a little bit like a narrative on the page. If you're following along, it's on 128. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, lived on the east side of St. Paul. I was raised mostly in the south, but uh, my mom was from St. Paul. And as she, as she aged, she ended up getting Lewy body dementia. And if you know what that is, it's, uh, Robin Williams had that. Dr. Friedrich Louis discovered abnormal protein deposits that disrupt brain functioning, behavior, and perception. One of the effects is that you can experience complex visual hallucinations. So the poem has a little bit of that in there. 
to Grandma Dolores, suffering from Lewy body dementia. Remember the good times we had on Magnolia Avenue, where all the St. Paul streets were named after flowers? Yours was the only pink house on the block. Christmas visits were particularly special. Snow boots by the door, cookers bubbling with spaghetti sauce, the secret recipe Rose Totina share, share Totino, sorry. A rec room filled with ripped Christmas wrappings and a silver tree that rotated and played Oh Holy Night. Remember that New Year's Eve party when Grandpa dressed up like the New Year's baby, sporting a diaper and a golden sash? He used to chase us around the house, snapping false teeth in hand. That was a little scary. Remember the beauty of your summer garden, zinnias, snapdragons, and gladiolas? Despite your love of pretty things, I learned you were not always very happy. Sorry. What made you so sad? Was it not getting to go to school like your little sister, Margie? Riding the streetcar to pick rags rather than read books? Was it your sad name? or having eight children with a husband who liked his bump of Fleischmann's and trips to Lenway's lounge. In later years, your love for Frank was like a color you wore upon your dress. I happen to know that he could be a hard man to love, especially with a shot glass in hand. You cried after Grandpa passed, wishing you could go too. Now you live in a center called Evergreen. Your lazy boy has a broken footrest, and your eyes, once bright as a winter-fed spring, stare blankly, ancient cataracts sparking like a sputtering lamp. I hope you liked the tiny manger scene I brought you from the Vatican. I enjoyed our conversation, which seemed to flow like yarn once flew between your knitting needles. It was nice walking down to the lunchroom with you, Everyone in Ember Evergreen seemed kind, even though the fellow with the Roy Orbison sunglasses tried to steal your banana cake. I'm glad you enjoyed the vegetable soup. Wasn't that funny when that one woman tried to take my coat and followed us to your room? She also tried to follow me out, insisting her husband was bringing the car around. Don't forget, though, that Grandpa has been gone now some 25 years, so you could not have seen him singing off-key in a church service while the Lutherans drank near beer and a nurse served cookies. Also, I really don't think that nurse would threaten you with a kick in the teeth. I'm so sorry you thought you saw a bloody baby's head wrapped in a sweater in the sink or that you saw Frank sticking his head in a mailbox. How scary. Be assured that these are imaginings, not real. Remember, too, my mom, your eldest girl, is also gone, about four years now. She's laid to rest in the Fort Snelling Cemetery. Please don't worry about the terrorist you see on TV. There's no need to keep cutting your phone cord. I was real glad to see you, Grandma, because I love you. Remember, 
Some things you think you see aren't real. But I am, and you are, like the Velveteen Rabbit, a story we once read, your love makes me come alive. Thank you. Next up, we have Eddie Samara, who writes, for as long as I can remember, I have been a poet, spinning lines like a web to hold myself together, to find a thread of connection with those around me. Today, I meditate with my eyes wide open, heart Heart here, sorry, hear poetry in whispering leaves and still believe that world, words can change the world. I love facilitating and participating in transformative spaces that open opportunities for people to really look at each other, to really listen, to see each other through stories and hear ourselves echo in each unique voice. I write poetry as an embodied prayer to the universe that we as a species wake up, connect, heal, remember, and love. Let's give a round of applause for Eddie. The piece I'm gonna read is River Dance. The river is frozen over, reflecting me back against the snowy sky. Suddenly I slip beneath the perfect stillness, like Alice through the looking glass. The river blowing icy breath into my lungs as I submerge my waters mingling just below the thin membrane of ice and skin. The river sings, here is where we all begin, again and again and again. One misstep from solid ground, silently sinking past the roots and rocks, I slide into the flow that moves just below the frozen mirror, moon floating over ice above me as I dissolve into the river. I devolve back into the watery womb only to be born again in the blink of an eye, my fingers catching holds in the crevices. I crawl back through stone and root, surrendering to the embrace of the riverbank. I kneel under the weight of knowing that the blue-black waters run relentlessly flow under the frozen eddies, dancing the unending reel of rain to river to ocean to rain. The river whispers, begin again and again and again. The water cycle of the river returns, forever dancing in my blood just under the skin. I begin again and again and again. Uh, last piece I'm gonna read is a, a piece that was published in The Naked Eye, uh, Do No Harm. I was strapped to the table waiting for them to run the pick line from my elbow to my heart. The nurse bent over the bracelet that shackled me to an identity I couldn't quite shed despite the fresh scars across my chest. My smile met hers in a preemptive plea for mercy. You see, I knew the routine. She would read the barcoded band and ask me to verify my full name for my protection, of course. I tried to strike first, hoping humor would hold the inevitable humiliation in check. I said, yes, that's my band name, but please call me Eddie. She laughed, but not with me. I'm just going to call you Miss So-and-so. Tears slid off the table because I couldn't. I was stuck weighing the relative cost-benefit analysis of pissing off the person pushing a sharp needle deep into my blood supply all the while speaking blunt trauma into my bones. Now, I would like to tell you that I metaphorically and heroically stood up for myself and queers everywhere, right there in that moment. 
But that is not my story. That is not my truth. The truth is, I was tired, y'all. I had been having variations of this demeaning conversation multiple times a day during my hospital stay, courtesy of the very finest medical care San Francisco has to offer. Before every blood draw, every test, every procedure, the question of my real name, and more times than I can say, erase, someone saying right to my face, essentially, I refuse to see you. You do not exist. You are not a man. In each dismissive refusal to address me properly, I heard repeatedly that I am not even human enough to own my own name. So when the IV tubing stopped just short of my heart, the nurse's words went deeper, tearing into cardiac cavities, leaving their echo to beat like an arrhythmia in the hollow space that passes for my chest. I am not a man. I am not a man. I am not a man. I am a man. I am a man. I am. <clears throat> Next up, we have Colleen Casey, who uses language and other arts to facilitate positive transformation. From, from Bedote and of Medewankanton, Dakota, and European American heritages, Colleen considers herself a person of cross-currents and confluences. She loves supporting people who are strengthening their voices. She believes we are all related. Let's give a round of applause for Colleen. Before I begin, I just want to thank the St. Paul Almanac that brings us together in such special ways, and um, also thank Crack Walnut for bringing together the Literary Festival, thank the Clara Cafe, and all of you who've read, and all of you are here to listen. I am going to start out with a microculture joke. I was born in Minneapolis, and I live in St. Paul. <laughs> Good, it's a crow that gets the joke. Of <laughs> course, I'm Bedewakonton, Dakota descent, and so this is Bedote, <laughs> Bedote before the cities came, and it's still Bedote to me. I'm going to start out with just a little uh, bus story, because I like to ride the bus and I tell stories about that, and then I'll launch into, I've got two short poems, and one in the almanac and another one, so... So it was a fine day, and I got off the bus, and I was heading to work. And the bus stopped at Chicago and Franklin, if you know that quarter in South Minneapolis. is really busy, and I had about four blocks to walk south to get to work. I was a little late, so I picked up the pace. And when I was about half a block to my work's door, a tall, older gentleman stopped me. And I thought, oh, great, what's he going to do, ask for directions or something? But instead, he looked at me, and he said, are you Native American? And I looked at him, and I said, yes. Well, I'm mixed blood, but I didn't get into that. It's always complicated. I said, yes, I am. And he looked even more astounded, and he said, and you speak English. And I was sizing him up, and I thought, well, he's probably Somali immigrant. Maybe he learned English before he came here, and anyway, I'm uh, seeing he's enthusiastic, so I'll be enthusiastic, and I thought I'd have a little fun. Well, I said, yes, I speak English, and he said, really, you speak English? And I said, yes, and I speak French, Italian, Spanish, and some Dakota, 
which is for me a heritage language. And he was still looking at me flabbergasted. Then I thought I'd have a little more fun. And I said, you know, I'm going to work. And I work over there at the English Learning Center. Have you heard of that? It's an English school where uh, volunteer teachers help adults learn English and computer and math and citizenship. And I said, you know, I'm going to have to hurry up because I don't want to be late. So that's that. <laughs> but I have a lot of interesting encounters with people who comment on my appearance, my ethnicity, who I am. I guess um, it's funny because I have other people who don't realize that I'm native. And for example, I had a friend, I was friends with him for about a year and a half before he found out I was native. Um, and his name is Harry, Harry Greenberg, and he's a self-described New York Jew via New uh, Russian Jew via New York City. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, you're native? I always thought you were dark Irish. <laughs> well, the name like Colin Casey, I'm also Irish, but I'm, I'm many things. So the two, story, uh, two poems I'm going to share uh, have to do with heritage. Um, and the poem in the book is on page, what, 117? And it's called Over, Under, Around. And you might think it's a poem just about braiding, but as poems often operate on multiple levels, I wrote a series of poems um, in preparation for the 150th anniversary of the U.S. Dakota War. And in it, I write from different perspectives of Native women and write about the lives of Native women and children. And part of the thing that I do with the poem cycle is I'm reclaiming touch, because in colonized people, sometimes um, which I said, there's a lot of brutality, and it's brutality enacted upon us, and then it's brutality we enact upon ourselves. So this poem um, is about resistance and about survival and thriving under oppression. Over, under, around. Her long hair falls, dark, sweet-smelling, smooth. It grows in deep night flows, in shadowy folds, then straightens down her supple back. My fingers dance, soft rhythmic moves, seek separate strands, weave them in loop, over, under, around, over, under, around, until they shine, arranged, in two neat braids, like mine. <laughs> and this one is um, called Irish Magic. We are in an Irish-themed coffee shop. <laughs> It's not Irish-owned, but it's Irish-themed. <laughs> uh, anyway, so this one's to my dad's side of the family and all of you who are also Irish, Irish-American. Irish magic. I believe in leprechauns. Do you? The wee folk and the fairy rings. You too? I'm not so sure about that pot of gold. At least nobody's found it yet. And as far as Irish luck, maybe, maybe not. But I like to believe in an emerald isle with huddled stone mounds and humble cottages, speckling lush hills rolling down to the sea. I like to believe in the coast mists that enshroud her, mystic cooling shawls, enveloping song and silence, and the lilt of a language almost lost, so sweet on the tongue. Mostly I believe in Aaron's poets, children and grandchildren, distant cousins, scattered seeds, stirring spirits, making music and meaning around the globe, in lullabies, laughs, and loud voices, in whispers, and in prayers. In this I do believe, in this I do believe. Thank you. Next up, we have Kristen D. Anderson. 
a retired pastor, a former high school teacher and counselor, is determined to overcome every barrier she meets. If that turns out to be fun, well, so much the better. Let's welcome Kristen. I didn't even write all that, so that's fun. On page 135, if you want to follow along. Riding the rails. Little shop of horrors. I've never seen the movie. I don't even know the story. But with a mental shrug, I capitulated. Sure, I'll keep you company. When my friend Catherine wanted to see the high school production, I was agreeable. At 86, she could no longer drive at night, so providing transport was up to me. I was only 76. A friend's daughters were in the place, so we were determined to support them by attending. Getting there was a challenge on one of our Minnesota winter evenings. Cold, biting wind seeped into the vehicle as we slipped and slid on the roads. But we made it to Central High School in plenty of time. I let Catherine off near the main walkway and then went to find a parking place. The last handicapped spot was free, so with my bone-on-bone knees, I soon made my way back to the entrance. I stood there, gaping at a huge outdoor flight of stairs with snow-collected corners, the only way to get up to the theater. That was a bit more than what I wanted to tackle. I followed the sidewalk around to the handicapped entrance, only to find it locked. A sign stated, these doors are open only when the buses are loading or unloading. The options were limited to two. Climb the steps or abandon hope for seeing the play. As I checked out the mass of concrete in front of me, I was reminded of the angle of the pyramids my eyes had scanned in Egypt as they traveled up and up. On this surface, however, maybe 25 feet across, several handrails divided the slope into three sections and two flights. The treads must have numbered close to 30, but they didn't seem to be high steps. I can do this. Hand over hand on the rail, I pulled myself up without a hitch. After the play, we hung around to talk to our friend and her two daughters, so not many folks were still there when we left. I stood momentarily at the top of the route, trying to figure out if slowly backing down might be the better way, when two thoughts appeared unbidden in my mind. The rail I had pulled myself up on was basically an iron pipe, solid, strong, attached tightly with no give, and the center rails were actually two handrails, installed about 10 inches apart, one for those ascending and one for those going down. Hmm. With a slight lift of my right hip, I settled myself regally on the pair of rails, feet hanging loose, and gripping one pipe with leather driving glove hands to keep myself steady. Then I let go. Whoosh! Hop off, trot two steps to cross the middle landing, and whoosh! Once more, 
the wind in my face, the night crisp, the speed almost beyond the edge of just right. <laughs> the words I once heard coming from a small child were perfect. That did be fun. Next up, we have Melissa Borgman Kemday, a contemplative writer, teacher, and spiritual director residing in the Lexham neighborhood of St. Paul. She is happily married to Francois, a bread baker of Burkina Faso, West Africa, and they are the proud parents of Marguerite and Gabby. You can read her work at visionarymonasteryminneapolis.org. Let's give a round of applause. So this is on our community garden. If you want to follow along, it's page 188 in the almanac. Our community garden, a wild, magical experiment. It's February in Minnesota and still cold. My Facebook news feed includes images of neighbors in Belize, sun, beach, thatched roof huts, and coconut cocktails. But here, along Selby Avenue, there are patches of snow and ice on the ground. And on this particular day, I noticed the naked tree branches of the ginkgo outside my window. They appear in ever dull gray against the vibrant winter blue sky. I can predict that when I walk out my back door in an hour to collect my child from school, my cheeks will feel hot pink in the frigid air. It's against this winter backdrop that my thoughts travel across the street, past the Central High School garage at the corner of Dunlap, over Dayton, to the alley behind 1130 Marshall, where the gates to the Lexham Community Garden opens, and where I entertain this winter dormancy, giving way to spring. In October of last year, fellow gardening neighbor Jennifer Germain and I planted roughly 90 cloves of garlic in the community cooperative plots. In a raised bed of compost and soil, we participated in this wild experiment of hope and good intention, sinking individual bulbs a finger's length below the surface and then covering each with our own rustic mix of hay and leaf mulch. I think about that garlic. I think about the woman who sold it to me at the farmer's market off Summit and Lexington in the St. Thomas More parking lot. I remember the farmer's name was Blea and how she spoke confidently of the red chestnut variety that she had harvested five seasons in a row. I recall her daughter, Lee, translating the planting instructions from Hmong to English and me fervently trying to take notes. I love this place. When Karen Randall opened her three city lots wide yard to the community's collaborative gardening efforts, she did something wonderful for me and my family. She invited me and my family into this experience of growing our own food. We're not only growing our food, but doing so alongside other residents of this community. Last May, I was next to Siegfried and Linda, turning over soil, preparing the strawberry beds. 
Alongside Elisa and Meg and Max and Harry and Graham and Lola, I harvested loads of rainbow Swiss chard and lacinato kale. And so we, we swapped recipes for Caesar salads and veggie soups. It was with Brian and Ellen that I discovered the savory gifts of the San Marzano tomato and the sweet qualities of the sun golds. I popped them in my mouth like candy during the August harvest day. On this particular garden day, alongside my five-year-old daughter Marguerite in her princess costume, I giggled as she plucked the Kirby and Japanese cucumbers for pickling, wielding each like a magic wand. A stone's throw from our own kitchen. In the middle of the city, we grow this food. We participate in this adventure that connects us with the earth, with nature, with the seasons, and with one another. And we mark what is magic for our children, delighting in this seasonal endeavor. We celebrate our residence in this urban landscape. And Marguerite wanted me to note that she was five when I wrote this, and tomorrow she turns seven. Okay, next up we have Sherry Roberts, who is the author of Down Dog Diary, a Minnesota mystery with a yoga spin, and Book of Mercy, a funny short about a serious issue, book banning. She spends way too much time watching eagles, crows, and many wildlife that crosses her backyard or online path. Let's give Sherry Roberts a round of applause. Thank you. Uh, thank you, St. Paul Almanac. Thank you all for squeezing in here and, and being so cozy. Um, I wrote this story one winter when I was intrigued by the Eagle Cam. How many of you have seen the Eagle Cam and have been mesmerized by it? And so that winter, I was um, uh, clicking on the Eagle Cam like almost every hour. But that was also the winter that I was waiting for my first grandchild. My daughter, Sarah, was about to give birth. And so I was like clicking on EOCAM and then clicking to email and wondering, should I send her an email saying, how you doing? And I, I didn't send that many emails. But I started uh, thinking about this story and about young parents and about eagles. And so this is the story of John and Madison. And the last voice you hear in this story will be baby Rutherford's. The title is Rutherford Speaks. So what did Rutherford have to say last night? John mumbles around a mouthful of Cheerios. Rutherford is the name of their unborn child, a placeholder moniker assigned before they knew it was a girl and while they were ne negotiating over the baby's true name. John leans against the cracked counter of their snow-covered St. Paul fixer-upper and studies Madison, who sits at the kitchen table, a laptop balanced on her enormous belly. Madison knows he is worried about her and the dreams that have begun to plague her nights. In this last month of pregnancy, Madison is doing things she used to make fun of other people for doing. An artist, she stalks Pinterest and the aisles of do-it-yourself supply stores, buying materials for one project after another. And every night when John comes home from a day of geekery, as Madison calls his job in the IT department, he finds the nursery changed, added to, rearranged. Madison spends all day nesting and reading books and blogs about how to be a good mother. 
We don't know anything about raising a child, Madison says. Placing his empty bowl in the sink, John drops a kiss on her head and says, we'll figure it out. Why don't you give Pinterest a rest today? Long after John is gone, Madison finally moves, the, moves to the ugly recliner, the most comfortable spot in the house, and taps on the laptop. When she dreams of the baby, she feels like she is watching a movie. An ultrasound baby, bald head, fat fingers and toes, chattering to her. Last night, Dream Madison asked Dream Rutherford once again, how could she learn to be a good mother? And once again, Dream Rutherford said, watch the eagles. The Minnesota Department of Natural Resources had set up an eagle cam, a camera overlooking an eagle's nest on the frozen banks of the Mississippi in St. Paul. The camera posted live video online of a pair of eagles sitting on a nest of three eggs. It was March, the wind, the winding down of a brutal winter, 50 days of sub-zero temperatures, the sixth coldest winter in Minnesota, a winter that turns your words into icicles in the air. And as she watched the eagle cam, Madison talks to the baby. The mother and father eagle take turns sitting on the eggs to keep them warm. They never leave their post, not when a blizzard comes in and covers them, not when the icy wind sweeps down the river and burrows under their feathers. I will be like that. I will protect you when winter comes. The eagles sit and nest. They rearrange twigs with their beaks, moving the twigs from one spot to another and back again. Madison understands completely. See, Rutherford, we have to get the nursery just right. It will be your personal nest. When John comes home that day, he is shocked to see no new changes in the nursery. What have you been doing all day? Watching the eagles, Madison says. All day? I couldn't help it. I was like Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window. I spent the day spying on eagles. John gives her a worried look. That night, in bed, he reaches around the beach ball of her belly and whispers in her ear, you know, Rutherford won't know if we put her diaper on backward or not. She will just be as new at being human as we will be at being parents. We'll learn together. Madison hadn't thought of that. She takes those words into her dreams and sighs. When Mad while Madison sleeps, Rutherford talks to herself. I don't know where I am, and I don't know how I got here. I only know three things. I can move, I can hear, and I'm wet. When I push with my hands and my feet and my head, I run into this rubbery barrier. It won't let me through, even when I run my fist along the surface, even when I kick it. <laughs> I wish I could understand the things I'm hearing. Damn Vikings. What is a Viking? <laughs> I love you. What is love? Sometimes everything vibrates and heats up. Sometimes something's drumming against me. I don't know if this is enemy or friend. I don't like it. I hear a voice say, silly cat. What is cat? Finally, I am leaving this long darkness and sliding toward the light. And then I am out. I blink, too bright. Keep the eyes closed. Suddenly, I remember to breathe and gasp with a cry. I hear someone say, it's a girl. I don't know what that is. I want to be 
an eagle. So that uh, wraps up our reading. Um, let's thank uh, um, St. Paul Almanac again. Let's give them a round of applause for all they do in putting this on. And um, um, I'd also like to thank, let's uh, thank Cloudhead Coffee for uh, hosting us and <laughs> having a having a space to pack us into. So, uh, um, and also, uh, let's give a round one more time for our readers, Lisa, Barbara, Donna, Eddie, Colleen, Kristen, Melissa, and Sherry. Let's give them another round of applause. To hear more stories, learn more about Storymobile, and to find out where we'll be pedaling off to next, visit storymobile.org.